Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Today's podcast is brought to you by Casper Mattress. Obsessively engineered for outrageous comfort, Casper mattresses, sheets, and pillows work together to create a sleep environment that loves you back. We're all obsessed with our sleep, but Casper is not only trying to change the way you sleep, but the way you shop for mattresses. So you get a 100-night trial to check it out and free returns if it doesn't work out. So please go check out casper.com forward slash friends forward slash pantsuit politics. Again, that's casper.com forward slash friends forward slash pantsuit politics. Pantsuit politics is made possible by your support. At pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, you can click on become a supporter to make a one-time contribution to our podcast or to become a monthly subscriber. For the cost of a cup of coffee or dinner for you and a friend, you can help us continue to keep the nuance coming. So again, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and click on become a supporter. Sarah and I are truly grateful for all of your support. Repeal and replace. That's what Republicans have been saying for seven years. Today we're talking about the American Health Care Act, the Republicans' answer to Obamacare. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today. 
today in the pearls, we're going to cover a little bit of news as well as two articles that we've been discussing on our social media channels with our listeners, as well as as always complimenting the other side before we turn to the American Health Care Act and the heels where we'll be sharing what's been on our mind this week. So a number of you ask us questions on social media about the decision by the Trump administration to ask for the resignation of 46 U.S. attorneys. And I think that, you know, it's it's been particularly in the news because some of those U.S. attorneys were blindsided by the communication flow here. It's typical for a new administration to replace most of those folks and kind of put in people that the new attorney general is comfortable with in the Department of Justice. But the way that this administration went about it was particularly rough. I'm so surprised. Yeah, I said to one of our listeners on Twitter (laughs) that it felt like using a chainsaw when a butter knife would get the job done because you could do this a lot of different ways. But having someone find out on Twitter or on cable news that their resignation had been asked for. It doesn't respect the offices that these folks hold. These are important positions. Well, and the attorney general in New York refused to resign, and so they fired him. And now he's turned that into a public relations story, at the very least, if not a nightmare. Again, maybe not the best strategy. He apparently had received some assurances from, it sounded like Donald Trump himself, that he would retain his job in the new administration. I saw some suggestions that Trump had seen in sort of right-wing media calls for them to clean house at the Department of Justice and that perhaps that precipitated this move. I don't know how fair that is because I do think it's pretty normal. The Obama administration slow played this quite a bit compared to prior administrations. And I read that one U.S. attorney who had been transitioned out in the Obama White House process talked about how classy the way they handled it was compared to this situation. Well, speaking of the effect of conservative media... We wanted to take a moment and discuss the Breitbart right-wing media ecosystem altered broader media agenda study that I shared on Facebook. And I'm going to just read a quick quick summary in the first few paragraphs. We have a less exotic but perhaps more disconcerting explanation. And they're talking about fake news and the media and how it affected the presidential election. Over our own study of over 1.25 million stories published online between April 1st, 2015 and Election Day shows that a right-wing media network anchored around Breitbart developed as a distinct and insulated media system, using social media as a backbone to transmit a hyper-partisan perspective to the world. This pro-Trump media sphere appears to have not only successfully set the agenda for the conservative media sphere, but also strongly influenced the broader media agenda, in particular coverage of Hillary Clinton. While concerns about political and media polarization online are longstanding, our study suggests that polarization was asymmetric. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think not surprising, but there's something about seeing it represented graphically that's disconcerting, to say the least, especially when you think about Breitbart as the center of that right wing side. I think it would have been less shocking to see it be Fox News or the Washington Examiner or one of the right wing publications like National Review that has a little bit more credibility and sort of the conservative intelligentsia. But Breitbart, man. 
Yeah, you mean the white nationalist agenda of Breitbart is concerning that it's pushing the media environment? When I read this article, I just wanted to go, I knew it. Because you hear this all the time if you are a progressive or liberal person. Well, you have CNN and you have NPR and rah, 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 and they, they're just as bad. First of all, push, comparing NPR to Fox News sends me directly over the edge. And second of all, no, clearly they're not the same. Even if they do have liberal bents, they're not as extreme as what's driving the national conversation. I mean, because I think we all assume that conservative media drives the conservative narrative. But I think what was so disconcerting about this study is that conservative media media drives the national narrative. I mean, it's not that that was surprising, that stupid word um, cloud with email, you know, they have the word cloud of the words uh, published about Hillary Clinton and the word cloud about the words published by Donald Trump. And hers is basically just email giant with a bunch of little words around it. And I mean, it's clear that the sort of anti-talking points perpetuated by the people against Hillary Clinton was was really steering the conversation and continues to. And I think that's extremely concerning. It'd be concerning if it was, like you said, Fox News driving the conversation. But Breitbart, I don't even like to use the word, I mean, I guess media is appropriate. News sure isn't. I mean, they they perpetuate a worldview, and it's scary. If you just scroll the headlines on Breitbart, which I don't do very often because it, I find it really difficult, I don't know how you take it seriously. And I, I'm not trying to insult anyone. It just feels so over the top to me. It it feels like it crosses a line into some kind of political version of a tabloid. Yes. It's and like, it's I mean, hard it, for me to understand viewing it as a credible news source. I know lots of people do, and I'm truly not trying to insult them. I just want to understand how that feels proportionate to what you're seeing in the New York Times. I, I get I mean, viewing the New York Times and seeing a liberal bent. I really do. I don't see how Breitbart feels proportionate in its conservative bent. And it I don't think it's conservative. I think it's populist nationalism, but yeah. that for another day. I mean it's the the narrative of Breitbart is brown people are out to get us. Let's be real. Yeah, I that don't is have when, an argument with that. Yeah, I don't even scroll the headlines. I read it and sometimes I mean and it's I mean it's like they have I feel like they almost have like a tag. They don't tag it that, but it may might as well be. What was other the other thing that was interesting is what media was seen as neutral and the hill came out on top as sort of this um, really nicely uh, stacked in between the two the, the red and blue worlds and and was pretty influential as well. That surprised me. I didn't realize that the hill was so popular. Yeah, I mean, I actually when I, I you know they use Twitter sharing and Twitter um, sort of social media um, viralness. I think is a huge part of the study. And I do feel like a lot of times how I, I, cl- I don't read The Hill, but I end up, let me rephrase, I don't follow The Hill, but I end up reading The Hill a lot because I do see those stories a lot on Twitter and Facebook. So those other news organizations need to be assessing The Hill's social media strategy because it's clearly working. Well, it's interesting, though, because I usually get really annoyed with headlines from The Hill. But then when I read the article, I feel like it's more fair than the headline <laughs> so i guess yeah, but the headline is why people that are clicking viral. that's how they're getting those twitter that twitter viralness right the headline gets people to click that's what's important right and it makes well, me sad that inflammatory headlines are what we're all looking for well and what's really interesting as i was assessing this sort of media and how it influences the, the national narrative but also how it it influences our own personal perspective there was this really great new york times um 
piece that was like exit your bubble and it it was sort of um skeptical of this current um movement to the sort of the the tech industry's sudden interest and there's all these plugins you could use to exit your bubble but i i also just went through the it was a good collection so i went through the article and used all the different tools there's one called polit echo polit political it's like polit p-o-l-i-t-e-c-h-o and that one was really interesting, and I posted it on the social, our social media pages about um, it takes these bubbles we're seeing on this study and does it with your Facebook friends. And mine were actually pretty – they weren't totally even. I definitely had more blue friends than red friends, but they weren't way disproportionate either. So I did that one. I did – there was another plugin that would insert other um, – like other perspective news stories into your Facebook feed, but I've deleted Facebook from my phone. So you can also have them emailed to you and it's called Escape Your Bubble. And what's really interesting about this one is the first thing they emailed me was the study that I shared that we're about to talk about, about how this professor had actors switch genders and reenact Hillary and Donald's political debates or presidential debates so they had a woman playing donald trump and a man playing hillary and how surprised the progressive audience was there by their reaction to the different actors and i was totally skeptical and then i watched the video and he also got on my nerves which was sort of surprising but that's how i found what's cool is that's how i found that study was escape your bubble if you want to go check that out i thought that article was great and the clip that they shared of the debates was just fascinating to watch. I mean, it really changed my perspective because I watched all of the debates thinking exactly what the thesis that I think they started this experiment with was, which was a woman could not get away with being this aggressive. And then you watch it and no, she absolutely can. I mean, I think she still seemed like the, the better of the options in that setting. And she really even struck me as more credible than Donald Trump using his exact language and exact gestures. Yeah, it was like, well, what struck me, she, I still obviously still subscribe to the belief that sexism affected Hillary Clinton. Clearly, I'm not going to abandon that. But what was interesting to me was the way, and I guess this really shouldn't be surprising because she does have issues with this kind of stuff, but like he came off as so aloof and so like, the lack of emotion in the argument that he was making. I mean, it just really illustrated to me that she, she, he, the Donald Trump character played by the woman, a.k.a. Donald Trump himself, was really making such a consistent emotional argument. And he slash Hillary Clinton, the actor playing Hillary Clinton and reading Hillary Clinton's word, was really making a traditional political policy non-emotional argument and the difference really stood out when the actors' genders were switched. The article quoted a musical theater professor saying something like, you, Donald Trump was speaking in lines that you could sing along to, and there was no hook for Secretary Clinton. Mm. And I thought that was a very astute way to say it. Yeah, definitely. So are you ready to compliment the other side? 
Sure. So I will compliment Representative Debbie Dingell. Um, I caught her on cable news one morning. I just turned the TV on quickly and saw an interview with her. And she was talking about the Republican health plan that we're going to discuss in the suit. And what I really appreciated about the conversation was that, you know, she was critical of it. She also acknowledged that at the time the Affordable Care Act was passed, she knew it was problematic. She felt that many Democrats knew that there were flaws in it and that it needed to be worked on and that she was open to that process of working on it. And I thought, man, like that's all anybody needs to do, right? Just say, of course, I'm open to continuous improvement. This isn't it, but I'm open to that conversation. I thought it was great, and I, I really appreciated her tone on the topic. Well, I heard an interview with Wisconsin Representative Sensenbrenner, which is quite the name, awesome name. And he was on NPR, and they were interviewing him with regards to town halls because he has been holding more than his fair share, and he was, like, really open about how important he thinks that is. He was he was on his 41st town hall when they interviewed him a while ago, and I think he was, like, he was, like, resp- If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon-grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and Jean each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsy. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. 
Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. Responsible for like 40% of all Republican town halls at that point. And I just thought his ability to just say, yep, this is important and I'm going to do it. And it's important that I listen to my constituents and at all cost was refreshing, especially because we have so many listeners writing in and saying, I can't believe the, you know, there's so many negative narratives out there about like, I'm just not going to listen to my constituents and people sending like cease and desist letters to their constituents and all kinds of craziness. So his voice um, especially among the Republican Party, just saying, nope, this is my job, was really great. So we're going to talk about the Republican health care proposal next in the suit. So, Beth, before we get started, I wanted to share your post-election observation about the Republican Party you made way back in November. And the Republican Party needs to get it together and fast because the pressure of not being in a divided government is immense. This means there is no cover, none. If the Republican Party can't govern effectively now, then they can't govern at all. There are no excuses. So what do you think? How are they doing so far? I have a lot of questions about their strategy. <laughs> yeah, let's tackle let's tackle strategy and process first. I think we should tackle strategy and process and then move on to the actual bill. What do you think? So my first question is, why are you starting with health care? There are so many topics on the table. Trump ran on immigration. Trump is doing a lot with immigration via executive order. If you're going to do a major legislative overhaul. I don't understand starting with health care instead of immigration. I also don't understand starting with health care when the Trump administration is promising tax reform just around the corner, because so much of the Affordable Care Act and so much of the American Health Care Act is about taxation. And it seems like if you're going to do this and then have major tax reform, Wouldn't it be better to have the context of the tax reform as a backdrop to looking at all these taxes, right? So I don't, just sequentially, I don't understand why they're starting with health care. That's my first question. My second question is why they're doing this through the budget reconciliation process. And I get it in terms of they want to avoid the filibuster, but I think that is cowardly and lazy because doing this piecemeal seems like a recipe for disaster. It also seems like they're doing exactly what I and other Republicans have criticized Democrats for since the Affordable Care Act's passage. They're going super fast. They have they literally hid the bill from other Republicans, right? So people <laughs> couldn't read it. And now they're trying to cram it down. 
And I, I mean, don't appreciate any of that. I think it's hypocritical. I think it, it makes me feel very cynical about people like Paul Ryan. It makes me feel cynical about the leadership of the Republican Party. And I guess I shouldn't say that with any surprise after everything that we've just witnessed. But you would like to think that there'd be some consistency on one single issue in the way they've talked about it for years and are behaving now. Yeah, I believe your cynicism is well placed. I am. Not, I'm just not sure they even want to pass this at this point. I'm not really sure. I don't. I wonder if their strategy is fulfill the, the fulfill the campaign promise and repeal Obamacare, or at least attempt to repeal Obamacare, so that we can say we tried. And I think that is more important to them than actually addressing people's concerns with the current healthcare system. And, you know, especially with the process where we're going to do the budget reconciliation and then we're going to let a Tom Price come in with administrative rules. Oh, that's great. More more administrative rules because you guys love those. <laughs> and then pass legislation, which Democrats will not support after the havoc you've wreaked with these first two steps. Or they're not going to support it now. It's just so foolhardy. And so I th- have to believe that this is just about wanting to say they did it and getting it over with as quick as possible. Because I think the truth is the Republicans, when Obamacare started, when Obamacare was passed, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like when Obama Obamacare passed, what they wanted was to go back to the way it was. They just wanted to not do Obamacare. And that's why for so long and for, for the beginning, you know, several years of Obamacare's um, enactment, it was repeal, 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 repeal. They just wanted to go back to the way it was and get the government out of increased an increased role in health care. Then as, as the Obamacare system became more entrenched and people made clear that they liked pieces of Obamacare, it became, it became repeal and replace. But I don't really still to this day, even with this plan, think they know what they want to replace it with because the, their problems with Obamacare are so intrinsically tied to the benefits that people like that I just don't think they have a solution. And it's not that Obamacare doesn't have problems. I think there is definitely a gap between when people qualify for um, stop qualifying for Medicaid and can really start affording health insurance under where the subsidies pick up. There's a gap there. There's problems. But none of this legislation addresses those problems. And so I'm super skeptical especially since um, it also doesn't address some of the proposals that Donald Trump himself put forward during the campaign, like removing the state boundaries so that there's more market competition that doesn't address any of those things. So I think it can't address that because they're trying to do it in the reconciliation process. Right. Maybe that's phase two or three. Because I think they're squeezing in stuff under this that really doesn't have meet the you know, bird roll or follow the budget reconciliation process. Like, I'm not really sure some pieces of the bill meet those requirements. For those of you who haven't listened to the primer that we just released on this topic, the bird rule is a rule that says if you're going to use the budget reconciliation process for legislation, the legislation has to be about the budget. And it can't include things that are only tangentially related to the budget or that are um, just tacked on, right? It has to really be about the budget to get through the budget process, and you use the budget process because you want a simple majority vote instead of a 60-vote majority to avoid the filibuster in the Senate, which kind of takes me back to a question that I have for you, given your comments about maybe they don't actually want to do this. Do you think they, they, they meaning all Republicans in Congress, or they meaning the House of Representatives? Like, is this a maneuver 
by the House of Representatives to tell constituents in their often gerrymandered, very right-leaning districts, we voted to repeal Obamacare. The Senate stopped us. I mean, is that what this is, creating some accountability in the Senate, opportunities to run to the right of senators, opportunities to pick up a few seats in the Senate if you can blame Democrats for blocking it? Do you think that's, I mean, is it that cynical? I mean, I think that that could definitely be some of the thought presses of the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives. But the truth is that Senate Republicans have also been running on repeal, repeal, repeal. So I'm not really sure, even though there are more moderate Republicans who have said they're not going to support this, even, I mean, I wouldn't call our Senator Rand Paul moderate, and he's not going to support it. So, I mean, I don't know, I guess that could be a strategy, but I wouldn't speak for all House Republicans in the in Congress. I think it's definitely maybe more of a leadership tactic. And the other thing I for, we forgot to mention is that there is also, with regards to the process, no score from the Congressional Budget Office on who this will affect and how much it will cost. I mean, <laughs> oh, the irony in Republicans who complain constantly about the cost of government trying to pass legislation, big legislation, without information on how much it will cost is is uh, supporting your cynicism. Well, the cost of this is really significant in large part because this strips away so much revenue. So it doesn't dismantle as much as repealing Obamacare sounds like it would dismantle. It preserves a lot of things, and a lot of those things are pretty expensive. But it strips away all the funding mechanisms created in the Affordable Care Act for those programs. So I think the CBO score is going to be really ugly. So let's go start working through some of the biggest changes um, in this legislation. So I guess the the very first thing which you talked about in the primer is that it removes the individual mandate, which Republicans have always had a problem with, and replaces it with the 30 percent, totally just blanked on the name, the continuous cover coverage um, penalty, right? Like penalty. If, if you fail to maintain continuous coverage. So you decide at some point that you're going to take the risk and not have health insurance. Under the Affordable Care Act, you would get a penalty annually for not having health insurance. Under the Republican plan, once you decided to buy coverage again, you would pay a 30% penalty essentially on the premium for the first year that you're back on the plan. And I don't understand why we would remove money that goes to the government and give it as profits to the insurance company. I also don't understand why it's a one-time fee, so it would never motivate someone. You know, the motivation wouldn't remain. Like, once you're off, you might as well stay off until you get sick. It seems like the the opposite of what should be the goal, which is to get healthy people into the risk pool to decrease the cost, is not the effect of this change, which is tell people to stay out until you really need it or when you think you might need it because it's going to be 30% either way. I mean, you wait five years, you wait eight years, you wait 10 years, it's still just going to be 30%. I think all of this is so illustrative of the fact that we talk in these terms, we talk in terms as though these proposals are about actual health care when they're about the economics of paying for health care. And I get that there is a relationship between insured people who are regularly seeing physicians, regularly getting medication, complying with doctors' recommendations, and outcomes over the long term. 
But I think that both the Obamacare version of the individual mandate and the Republican version demonstrate that the trouble with all of this is that we're tying together health care and health insurance. The Obamacare individual mandate sounds um, like something that is stripping us of liberty and individuality if you're conservative. The way that it actually came down, it's just a rational economic decision for people to make because the penalty itself was in a lot of cases cheaper than buying an insurance policy. So you could make a rational choice to just pay the penalty if you didn't want to pay for insurance. And that's kind of the same choice that confronts you on the Republican side, except that it's an even the the calculus is even more weighted toward just take your chances if you decide you need health insurance. I mean, I think that you're right. I think that we talk about the spend. It's like we're talking about spending on health insurance without addressing the cost of health care. And I do think that Obamacare does attempt to address that in a lot of ways. In fact, we had that conversation if, after the town halls, and it's, it kept sitting with me, and I had to look it up. And, you know, most the unnecessary preventative care is not necessarily a huge concern because most, most plans limit that to one visit. And um, I think that anything that motivates people to do preventative care, and, you know, this bill keeps a lot of the preventative um, measures and health care protections like the ban on pre-existing conditions, the ban on lifetime limits, allowing children up to 27 to stay on their um, health insurance, and those like 10 areas of required coverage like birth control and maternal care, all those are staying. Well, and again, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just want to point out that I don't think that we should all like raise our hands about that too soon because I just think that those could not be addressed in this bill if they hope to get it through reconciliation. Oh, that's true. So they could, I mean, this that's what I get. When he did the, his little spiel on the three steps, I'm like, well, what are you saving for the third step is what's really concerning. So the other big change that this legislation um, addresses is it moves from Obamacare subsidies to tax credits. And where the subsidies were based on geographic location and age, these tax credits are based solely on age. And I think the important Um, component that has to be considered within these increasing tax credits based on your age is that Obamacare had a regulatory limit on the how much the insurance how much insurance companies could charge oldest Americans and I believe that it was like it was like a two time you couldn't charge them any more than like twice as much as you would charge someone younger and so this one has gone up a lot. So now you can charge older Americans five times as much as the amount they were getting um, as you could under Obamacare. But the thing is, like, then because these aren't li- linked to geographic areas and just based solely on age and not income level. So no. So, yeah, Obamacare subsidies were based on geographic location, income level and age. These are just based on age. So in theory, you could have, you know, an elderly person in, you know, BFE, Utah that's premiums could go up as much as five times as much, but whose, you know, help from the government, be it in the form of subsidies or these tax credits, is not near what it used to be. And I am intrigued by the idea that you would punish (laughs) the, you know, oldest demographic who especially has historically supported Republicans 
you know, right at about 2018, 2020 during the elections. I mean, this, this, the way this is structured, as I understand it, the benefit mainly goes to like young people in big cities. I, I, I don't, I'm so confused. Politically, I guess is what I should say. Politically, it's confusing. It's, it's pretty rational when you think about insurance as a financial device to mitigate risk, right? Because older people typically have more claims. And so this I've seen several think pieces about this legislation that say like, gosh, it's weird that a Republican piece of legislation would harm older people and benefit younger people. And and it's weird for Democrats to be in the position of arguing against something that benefits young people. I think this also shows the problem with kind of the whole system as it's currently structured, because the tax here's the deal with the tax credits in my mind. Like, I mean, fine, whatever. I don't think that we fix anything about health insurance or health care by doing tax credits because it is dishonest about the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is not my health care. You know, I'm a person who's going to probably benefit from these tax credits if I ever leave my employer-sponsored plan. That's the other piece. This is just about shopping in the individual in the marketplaces, right? So if you're all of this leaves in place this system that is built on employer sponsored coverage. Oh, but so it ta- also removes the requirement employer mandate. Employer mandate. Yeah, which I think is a good thing, but we can get to that in a second. So somebody like me, if I came off my employer sponsored plan, I go shopping in the exchange, I'm going to get this tax credit fine, right? I could afford my health insurance with or without it. It'll just be a little bit easier because of the tax credit. Well, that's that's fine. This is dishonest about the fact that the problem in terms of the federal spend on health care and in terms of access to health care and ultimately outcomes and all the things that we should be talking about in life and death terms occasionally is that we are going to have to help people who cannot pay for health care and tax credits don't get us there. Right. And all these, you know, HSA changes and um, allowing people to put more money in their HSAs is, you know, so tone deaf to that problem. People, the problem is people don't have money to put in their HSA. And listen, I love the HSA changes, right? I love that I could use my HSA dollars on over-the-counter medication. And I think that's a step in the right direction because I think pharmaceutical um, the pharmaceutical industry is contributing a lot to the high cost of healthcare. So I love driving people more to over the counter. I love that I can put more money every year in the HSA. But again, that doesn't get to the real problem. That's just kind of moving pieces around for the upper middle class in a lot right. of ways. And I think, and I think what you said is right. I mean, if and I think it applies to what you were saying about the rational choices with regards to the individual mandate. It's not I, – I, I bristle at the word rational because I think it's more about – what's the word I want? Not rational, but sort of like an emergency calculus, right? Because what Obamacare did was not force people to buy health insurance. It opened up more avenues for them to afford to buy health insurance, whether it be the Medicaid expansion, whether it be the subsidies. One of our listeners sent a really beautiful blog post called Dear Ivanka, let's talk about the HCA, 
And it was from this mother with two children who had chronic illnesses and chronic and um, disabilities and how Medicaid had really expanded her options. And the, you know, and she was honest, like my husband, and I don't have insurance because we fall um, in that gap between Medicaid and the subs- where the subsidies could help us afford it. But if you put on a 30% um, continuous coverage penalty, we'll never be able to afford it. And, you know, you should not, I love this line, we should not balance the budget on the backs of the most vulnerable citizens. It's a really great sort of first person on the ground. This is how this will affect me account. And I think, you know, it really puts a face and a name to that problem that what we're talking about is people who cannot afford this. And the numbers, you know, coming out, I was reading, I think it was on Vox, and I copied it here, that Standard & Poor's estimated that the Republican plan would reduce enrollment in the individual market by 2 million to 4 million people and the Medicaid market by 4 million to 6 million. Brookings Institution analysts predicted that the budget office would expect the bill to cause the number of uninsured to raise by at least 15 million. Like, I don't want that. I don't want to go back to the days where we had millions of Americans without health insurance. Like, that was awful and not fun and it was such it's such a brutal situation to put people in where they're making you know life or death decisions with um no they're not really making decisions because they don't really have a choice well probably the most significant aspect of this of this legislation gets to that population which is that it it is a step in in two directions i think one a step in the direction of shifting the burden to states for expansion of Medicaid. Oh, wait, hold on. I wanted to bring one more thing up before we moved on to Medicaid, which is the um, actuarial. Am I saying that word right? Actuarial. Actuarial. Thank you. Mm -hmm. The actuarial value. Um, Under Obamacare, the actuarial value requirement was 60%. And that means like the percentage of cost that the insurance company has to cover. So the, the important part of that is that Obamacare had a requirement of 60% and that the AHCA removes any requirement of all, at all, which again is another brick in that wall of just raising people's premiums, reducing their coverage, and pushing it far um, further out of the bounds of this population that we're about to talk about. So Medicaid, this, is, this looks like a step toward more state responsibility for Medicaid in a lot of ways, right? More discretion for states in how they spend Medicaid dollars, um, more commitment for states that want to do the Medicaid expansion, which is bringing on, you know, Medicaid is covering mostly children and uh, low-income adults on the elderly end of the spectrum as maybe a wraparound to Medicare. Working adults living in poverty are largely not benefited by Medicaid. So the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act tried to pick up more of those folks. And the federal government was was paying first the full boat for bringing those folks on. This year, it stepped down to 90%. The Republican legislation contemplates a freeze of the federal contribution to that expansion. Well, and the first thing that intrigues me about this is they pushed this Medicaid... Um, freeze to 2020, which doesn't that just say, you know, they're always concerned about the bad hombres running in under the deadline. Is Doesn't this just promote Medicaid expansion until 2020 because people know it's going to be frozen? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the... I, I, I get the sense of let's let's move things more to the state level in terms of both control and funding. 
What bothers me about all of this is that it is exactly what it looks like. It's just trimming around the edges instead of trying to fundamentally alter the system. Oh, I struggle. I struggle with the, because, I mean, I think that, oh, I guess I'm so confused by the idea of like removing any state sort of data analysis from the tax credits and that we know one of the problems with the marketplaces is in certain states with less population, you don't have as much competition. So on one hand, I understand that we are a big, diverse country and that the um, insurance needs of California versus Kentucky are very different. Get it. Got it. Totally on board with that. But I don't know. I also know that when we gave states a lot of control over welfare with block grants, it didn't go so great. And some states, actually like Kentucky, give a lot, a large percentage of those that number to cash subsidies to people who actually need them. And some people waste them on bullshit that nobody needs. So it's just, it's hard for me to, like I said, in some ways I understand that we're diverse and each state's needs are different, but there has to be some sort of requirement requirement that these needs are being, like the needs of the, of the neediest are being met, I guess. And that's what concerns me about this. Well, I said before that I think this is dishonest about the problem of people who truly cannot afford health insurance and we have got to get them health care. And, and by the way, I agree with that. I, I don't think anyone in the United States should go without basic health care access. So I also don't think that the only answer to that is single payer. The other problem that it's dishonest about, though, is at any income level, there are people who are so sick that health care is unaffordable. And those people are so sick that putting them into risk pools with everyone else is always going to drive the cost up for everyone. And I'm okay with sharing that burden because I think that I think that's just part of what insurance means and is. And I also think it's part of our responsibility to each other. But I think we have to get honest about those things to fundamentally fix the system. Avik Roy is a conservative thinker who has done a lot of work on health care. He has a proposal up that we'll link in the show notes called Transcending Obamacare that sort of builds on the Affordable Care Act but changes a lot of the approach. He wrote a piece several years ago in which he called basing our entire system on employer-sponsored plans the original sin of our healthcare system. And I think that's right, and I think it's a problem made worse by the Affordable Care Act and that will continue to be worse under the Republican proposal. I really think that if Republicans want to fix this and want to keep a market-driven approach to health care as opposed to single-payer, the first step is to get rid of all of the incentives for employers to sponsor health plans and drive more people to the marketplaces. Because if all the people who are on employer plans today jumped into those risk pools that are still with private carriers in the marketplaces... I think that gives you a much more sustainable population for a long-term health insurance plan that works. I mean, I'm not opposed to that, especially, I mean, I'm opposed to employer-based health care because I think that's how we end up with employers making decisions about people's reproductive rights, which they have no ability to do. I guess I just, I, again, sort of bristle at this, the market is the solution, just because I struggle with the market being a solution to something I see as a fundamental right. But I think that that is something that 
pre-Obamacare, America overall did not believe that health care was. Affordable health care in particular was a fundamental right. I think Obamacare has pushed us further into a change. I don't think we're all the way there. I think there are definitely Americans who believe that health care is not a fundamental right, affordable health care in particular. So, I mean, I don't know how to continue that conversation. I do think that the market, I mean, clearly the marketplaces need more competition if they're supposed to function like they're supposed to function because one person, one, you know, one insurance company in the marketplace doesn't give people a lot of of options with regards to affordability. The other thing I wanted, go ahead. I actually think a market-driven approach um, gets to better choices about reproductive rights and the kinds of things that would concern you um, with employer sponsorship faster than a single-payer system would. So, if, if we have a single-payer system, we're going to be fighting about things like reproductive health care coverage forever. I mean, this proposal, as, as much as this plan just kind of trims the edges of the Affordable Care Act, they sure made time to say that we're not going to provide Medicaid payments to Planned Parenthood clinics, right? And so when I think about a system where at a federal level we're seeing we're overseeing all health insurance i really can't stand that option because i think it will harm women i think it has the potential to harm transgendered people i think on the other hand if everybody gets off these employer sponsored plans which by the way are not good for employers either <laughs> like <laughs> offering benefits as an employer is a lose lose situation you basically have to do it because all of your competition does it, right? So to not have plans, and, and the Affordable Care Act had a penalty, you're not going to have that anymore if the Republican plan passes. But but if your competition's doing it, you've got to do it too, right? But you offer the plans, the cost of health care keeps going up. So the cost of insurance keeps going up no matter what you do. So even if you have a plan where you really stabilize the cost over a multi-year period, The only way that you can do that is to have high deductible plans, which your employees hate and gripe about, but they're still on, right? (laughs) There's, There's nothing, no one walks around saying, wow, like, I have really great health insurance and I really appreciate my employer for that. You kind of only think about it when there is a doctor you want to see who's out of network or a drug that you need that's out of network or you have a number of claims and you're having to spend that entire high deductible and you realize how high the deductible is and you think, gosh, my coverage is crap. So I don't think it's good for employers to have these plans. On a more macro level, a lot of employers are going to self-funded plans where they're basically taking their populations and creating their own risk pool, which helps a lot of employers stabilize the cost of the plans because they're not paying a bunch of extra fees to a carrier. But on the macro level, that's terrible, right? Because now we We've insulated more basically healthy people from the larger risk pools, and we can't spread greater risk across a bigger number of people. So I think the employer sponsorship just doesn't work for anyone. In a market-based approach, getting back to the point about reproductive rights, think about how good a lot of companies are right now at marketing to the people they see with purchasing power, and that's women. I could see some companies just knocking it out of the park with plans that contemplate a whole host of services that women would find valuable that aren't covered under traditional plans today because they don't have to be because nobody's competing for women today. You're taking your employer-sponsored plan or you're taking whatever you can get and pay for in the marketplaces. 
I mean, I guess I would need I would need a huge foundation of regulatory requirements upon which that marketplace is built, because I think that you again are running up against. It's not healthcare is not. It's nice to talk about competition when we're thinking about things we want in our healthcare with regards to preventative care or um, additional sort of well visits or you know the, the again emphasis on the word want. But at the same time, it just makes me extremely nervous when we get into things that people really need and do not have the time to, nor the inclination, and nor should they have to get into sort of a capitalist competitive situation with regards to, like, their children having cancer. Like, I just think that it's, I think, again, as long as there are regulatory requirements about what must be covered and sort of what we all agree in is the baseline sort of fundamental requirements with regards to affordable health care, and then you want to pay more for more above that, that's fine. I think that built on underneath all this is the the persistent idea that Americans believe more health care is better health care. And I think that's I don't know if any of this gets to that. I do think that Obamacare was attempting to get to a lot of that with regards to um, doctors, especially, you know, with Medicaid requirements requiring quality care instead of just quantity um, of coverage. And I, I mean, I, th- I think we're chipping away at that, but maybe not fast enough. Well, I, I do think that Go ahead. I, I agree with that. I think the regulatory foundation would need to be heavily grounded in disclosure requirements. Because mm. that's a problem with a lot of plans today. You can't make heads or tails of what is covered, of what your premium is, of how your deductible works. The language around insurance policies is really difficult and not accessible. So part of what I liked about the Affordable Care Act was the marketplace structure because it gives us an alternative to employer-sponsored health care. And I think it's simple to follow that sort of bronze, silver, gold, platinum kind of structure for the plans. I would like to see even more competition again. And I'm not talking about competition with respect to healthcare services, but competition with respect to these insurance products, you know, the financial mechanism to pay for them. And then if you could really understand what is covered, what is not covered, how it works, what your complete out of pocket exposure is and start making some decisions. And my solution to the Medicaid problem and the problem of how do we support working adults living in poverty is something like universal basic income. So I'd like to see us get away from the tax code as a mechanism to help help people buy health care and away from Medicaid as an alternative. But instead, just get real about the fact that we're going to there are people for whom we are going to have to give them dollars to spend on things they need in their lives. And, and let's just Yeah, but do that's that. not going to cover it. I mean, until we cover it, we can't, we can't even begin to help people with health care. I mean, most universal basic income estimates are like mm, $1,500, $1,600 a month. That's not going to get you if that might get you health insurance. Well, then maybe. let's have that. Let's have that debate then. Right. Because I would rather give people more money and build in the idea that we want people to have health care than to continue to mess around with the tax code. You know, I just think this whole system, I think Medicaid is fundamentally going to continue to be a problem. I get the Republican 
objective of trying to cap the federal government's exposure. But again, I think that's dishonest because at some point we're still going to have this whole population that needs support. So I would rather figure out a good system for giving them support and then give them freedom to decide how they spend those dollars. I hate the idea. I shared some of this on the primer. I hate the idea of someone with Medicaid going to a dentist or an eye doctor or a physician and being told, here's what you really need, but here's what's covered. And then being forced to make, well, they don't even have a choice sometimes, right? Because they can't afford the extra option. I'd rather just give people more dollars with fewer strings and, and the information they need to make good decisions and let them make those decisions. I mean, I think that it makes sense you like the marketplace because that was a Republican idea, <laughs> moderate <laughs> Republican idea. But I do think that one problem with Obamacare, um, the reality is the successful increase in coverage for the most part, is a result of Medicaid expansion, not the marketplaces. The marketplaces are not working the way we hoped they would because in several areas, and particularly rural areas, there's not enough competition. Because people so are still on employer-sponsored plans. That's the problem with the marketplaces, right? I don't know. I think that there – I don't think that's – I don't think that um, – I mean, I think – the first is we have to ask ourselves, like you said, what problem were we solving? And I think the first problem um, we solved is people who could not afford health insurance. And it wasn't because they were not on market or they were not on employer-based health care because they weren't or they were employed in places that didn't offer it or they weren't employed or underemployed or disability or whatever. So I think this big, huge population we swept up and insured um, and the reason the Medicaid expansion works so well is because these are the population you were talking about who just can't afford health care. Now, did the marketplace not work to the best of its capabilities in serving, like you were talking about, that middle income tier? Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right. I think there's not enough competition because that huge swath of people in middle income are on employer-based health care and not participating in the marketplace. But I'm not, like you said, I'm not sure – I think Americans struggle <laughs> with change and the idea that we're going to abandon employer-based health care is going to be hard. I mean, I don't, I don't have any problem with it, but I think other people will. I think it's super hard. I don't think any of this is easy, which is why I would rather see the Republicans not try to do something fast to just do something. I mean, that's the issue with the Affordable Care Act, too. There's some good ideas in there, but it, in my view, was just sort of with respect to middle income folks, it was lipstick on a pig, right? It was, we're going to keep the fundamental system in place. But we're going to give you a jazzy new way to purchase insurance. And that helped some people, helped a lot of people, but it doesn't really solve the issue. That's why you have people talking about the death spiral, not death in terms of physical death, but death spiral in terms of this doesn't make for a successful financial product because you have more people taking money out than putting money in. And so you've got to change that. And I think the only way you change that is to deal with employer-sponsored insurance. The other aspect of the Affordable Care Act is you're exactly right. I mean, it's the Medicaid expansion. And that's why what the Affordable Care Act looks like to me is really just a step in the journey towards single payer. And that's why I have a problem with it, because I think in the United States of America, as a big, diverse country with a whole lot of opinions about very personal decisions that need to be made, Single payer gives so much power to the federal government, and we have just seen 
how easy it is for control of the federal government to change hands in a way that can impact people on a very personal level. And that's something that I just don't want. But I agree with the objective of let's get people covered. Let's give them good information in the process of getting them covered. And let's not have Americans denied fundamental health insurance because we can't figure out a way to pay for it. We're a wealthy enough country that we can figure out a way to pay for it. So speaking of paying for it, before we move on, or I think that we need to cover, we've covered the bottom economic tier, the middle economic tier, and we should talk about the top economic tier because this is a huge $600 billion tax cut for many of the um, people at the highest end of the socioeconomic ladder. So this is from The Atlantic. Uh, the Obamacare replacement bill is a $600 billion tax cut with the benefits going almost entirely to the wealthy. To pay for its spending, Obamacare included several taxes on couples making more than $250,000, like a 3.8% surtax on investment income and a 0.9% surtax on wages. Last year, those levies brought in about $27 billion, according to the Wall Street Journal's analysis of IRS data. Repealing them would cost about $275 billion over the next decade, which is to say it would transfer $275 billion from public health spending to the richest 1% or 2%. Other provisions like repealing the limit of flexible spending accounts and expanding health savings accounts will also disproportionately benefit the rich. That's not all. Many companies can deduct employee salaries as business expense when they're... They pay taxes. Obamacare included a provision that prevented insurance companies from deducting more than 500000 of their top executive salaries as a way of raising a little bit of revenue and discouraging ever-rising compensation for insurance executives. But the Republican replacement plan scraps the provision so that large insurance companies like Cigna and Aetna, which pay their CEOs more than $15 million, would find new tax savings. Yeah. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was in a lot of really significant ways about raising revenue. And the Republican plan is mostly about getting rid of those taxing vehicles. And I don't think that's surprising. I think that's what Republicans do. What what I find so lazy about the Republican proposal is that it doesn't then say, here's the answer to that. Mm-hmm. And I really it keeps don't. The, it wants to have its cake and eat it too, though. It doesn't, doesn't right. just cut the revenue raising. It keeps the benefits people like, which is uh, wrong. the math doesn't add up. The math doesn't add up. And again, I go back to if you have dramatic tax reform around the corner, why are you messing with taxes in this way without having it all fold together? Have a clear, comprehensive picture of what is going to go out of the government and what is going to come into the government. I mean, I think that's no business would operate in this kind of fashion. And if Republicans are about fiscal responsibility, this just seems fiscally irresponsible to me. So let's let's give the AHCA a grade. What's your grade, Beth? I give it a D. I really like strong. I, I feel very strongly about this. I think the process is pathetic. There are things in it that I like, so I'm not giving it an F. But overall, I, mean, I was going to give it a C minus for those same reasons. But I think it's good that you're being harder on them. So I mean, just overall, I don't think this solves. If you've got this much control in the legislature, this is the time to think big thoughts. This is the time to do big things. And this does none of those things. This is such a missed opportunity for the Republican Party and for President Trump. This should be a sweet spot for him. I heard someone on television, I think it was on MSNBC, saying that all the reporting suggests that he just doesn't care about the details of this. He just wants to get something done. Man, if he could care about the details, this could be a moment when a lot of things get done that people from both parties like. 
And I just think it's sad that they're defaulting to kind of 1980s Republican visions of government when what we could do is really start to fix the healthcare problem in the United States. And I want to say one more thing about that because some people have asked, like, what do I think should happen? So my big thing is getting employers out of it. I also think that this Congress ought to impose the same advertising requirements on pharmaceutical companies that they do on tobacco. Because I think, to your point, Sarah, about changing the way we think about the healthcare that we need in this country, we need to stop turning on our TVs and seeing advertisements for prescription drugs. I, I well, think I that struggle is with that because there's, really, there's really good social science that says, the, especially when those ads started, that they empowered people in a way they hadn't been before to, you know, um, ask for certain aspects of healthcare, but I think with Doctor Google and the internet now, we probably um, are not seeing as much of a benefit. I think most people feel pretty empowered to come in with more information, and so these television commercials are definitely no longer needed. And and people think that they need those drugs because they're inundated with those commercials. I I think about this a lot because I see tons of ads for fibromyalgia drugs, and it just flies all over me. Um, knowing the things that I know about fibromyalgia and the treatment options for it. And I think that those, I, I really think that pharmaceutical spending is a massive unaddressed component of our healthcare problems in this country about the actual cost of care. So I wish that Congress would include that too. But anyway, it doesn't. So a D, that's what I give it, a D. <laughs> I mean, I was going to be a little, like I said, I was going to be a little nicer and give it a C minus, but now you've talked me into it. I also give it a D. Were you at C minus, though, because of all the things that it leaves in place? Yeah, and you're right, though. I think that that it might not leave those in place. And also, I think, though, what you said about I don't know what this accomplishes, what it accomplishes is the fulfillment of a campaign promise. I mean, I hate to be that cynical, but I really think this is what that's about. But it doesn't if you actually peel back even the most superficial layers. Because so much of the Affordable Care Act structure is left intact, it it is the most jaded way of fulfilling a promise that I can think of. So on that happy note, um, I was fixing to say on that uplifting note, let's. Move we're on doing to that the a lot lately. I feel kind of bad about <laughs> we're like that. down, down, down. And on that, hey, at least we have the heels. We could just end the show. So be grateful, people. <laughs> Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. 
Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Sarah, what are you thinking about besides politics this week? Um, so I am so excited because Paducah got a float center. And as our longtime listeners will remember, Beth and I did um, floating when we were in Philly for the DNC. And so um, I've been wanting to do it again and just sort of reading even more about how beneficial it is. So this is a sensory deprivation tank. You get in with about 10 inches of water that is heated to the uh, temperature of your body and has about 600 pounds of Epsom salt, so you float without effort. And then it's totally dark and totally quiet, and it's, you know, some have described it as much as a legal hallucinogenic because you can have sort of um, really powerful mental experiences, and it's really relaxing, and um, I'm so excited that we now have it in Paducah. So for all our Paducah listeners, if you want to try out floating, go check out Revive Paducah. I'm super, super, super excited. I got to go on Saturday, by the way. You got to go. Tell everybody why. Um, because I drove by the business and saw that it was open and freaked out and posted on Facebook. And the people reached out and said, um, we want some um, f- people who floated before to come try our soft opening so we can work out our workflow. Do you want to come float for free? Um, yes, I do. Thank you so much. My husband was so funny. <laughs> I came home and he was like, I was like, guess what? And he was like, what? And I was like, we're getting a float center. And he said, I thought you were going to tell me that we 
had won the lottery, your level of excitement is disproportionate to the news you just told me. And I was like, <laughs> wrong. You've never floated. You're wrong about that. Well, it is exciting. Like, I'm happy for you that you have that because I know that you absolutely loved that. I did. I also so what, love what the power you, of social media. What did you, what are you thinking about this week? My Leadership Northern Kentucky class um, had a session last week that was devoted to education. And we started our day very, very early in the morning at this elementary school called Glen O Swing in Covington, Kentucky. And I learned that it is the third top elementary school in the state. It has 95% free and reduced lunch. And it is absolutely amazing to see just the myth that poor kids can't learn shattered by this school. It was unbelievable. We got to hear directly from the principal. We went into the classrooms and sat at the tables with second graders who explained the way that they were working. The entire culture of this school is phenomenal. They open early so that parents who have to get to work have a safe place to bring their kids. They make sure every kid has had breakfast. If a kid's shoes are too tight, they replace the shoes so the kid can you know, focus on their learning. And there's this real sense of a culture of feedback instead of grades. So all the kids w- that I talked to would say like, I'm doing my work and then I'll go up and share it with my teacher and she'll give me feedback. And then I'll come back and I'll work on it some more and I'll get more feedback until it's correct. And it was just healthy and relevant to the workplace. Like I kept thinking if I had learned in a feedback system instead of a grading system, my transition to the corporate world would have been about a million times healthier and happier and easier. And you could tell that everybody was just engaged and they have this like assembly at the beginning of the day where they do all these chants and they talk about life lessons. And the principal said that it serves as sort of an emotional reset for kids who might be experiencing tough things at home. You know, they come in and they start their day with this super positive, uplifting moment that's all about them and their learning and improving their circumstances. And I was just blown away. I can't stop thinking about it. I wish I started my day with chants. I mean, I guess I could. I'm an adult. I could chant whenever I want to. But that sounds really positive and energizing. Well, to do it in the in a room, I mean, the entire school is there for this assembly every single morning. And they talk about how they're going to be respectful, responsible, and ready to learn. And I seriously, like, wish that we did this at my workplace because it is really energizing. I mean, I think as adults, if we all started the day with that, we will be respectful, responsible, and ready to learn. Better world. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, that's my sort of motto in life, for sure. But, I mean, major hats off to the people who are contributing to this school. There are tons of nonprofits in the community that help, you know, send kids home with dinners and weekend power packs. And they're just doing everything they can to fill in all the gaps that they can for these children. And the results are phenomenal. Well, that is great. And see, we are ending on a positive note after all. Yay! (laughs) Well, we'll be back with you on Friday for an episode of The Briefcase. We're looking forward to what I'm assuming will be prolific and thoughtful feedback on healthcare this week. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you to our producer, Nicholas Holland, and to our chief creative officer, Dante Lima, for all the work they do to make Pantsu Politics possible. And to all of you for making this community so special. Remember to like us on Facebook, Follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic or Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Please leave us your feedback and send us your ideas for show topics and Pantsuit Primers on social media, or you can email us at sarah at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com or beth at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. <laughs>